ask that you bless this time in the study of your word as we start a new book. Lord, it's always exciting, and uh, I pray that we wouldn't lose interest. I, I pray that the scriptures would come alive, even with these names that we're going to be reading, and Lord, that you would touch our hearts. And so we give you this time in the study of your word. Help us to make application. Help us to, uh, Lord, be attentive, because we come in and see the end of the day, and perhaps we're tired, and, and uh, maybe some haven't even had dinner yet. I just pray that right now you would feed us with your word and satisfy us. And so, Lord, we give this time to you as we study your word for you to teach us by the Holy Spirit. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. So First and Second Chronicles reiterates the stories that we have in Second Samuel all the way through Second Kings, which we just finished at the end of February before we had our series, uh, Families in Crisis. So, here is uh, these stories that are being told once again in the book of Chronicles. And the book of Chronicles, both First and Second Chronicles, is going to give a little bit different perspective. Now, sometimes we can look at this and think, oh, we just spent, you know, months going through Second Samuel, First and Second Kings, all the stories, you know, talking about David, how he reigned over Israel, how he did all the battles uh, against his enemy, and then Solomon, how he built the temple, and then the different kings, uh, the kings kings of Israel and the kings of Judah. And you might think, why would God have another set of books? And First and Second Chronicles was believed that initially was just one book. But now it's divided up in our Bibles in First and Second Chronicles. Why would God record those things once again? Well, there's a couple reasons. But one thing is, is that we have four Gospels, don't we? And in those four Gospels, we can have some of the same stories, the same events, particularly in the Synoptic Gospels. The Synoptic Gospels are Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And then you have John's Gospel. But in those Gospels, they have a little bit different perspective. In other words, Matthew was written to the Jewish reader. It was written to show that Jesus is the King of Kings, that he came to fulfill the Old Testament prophecy. So as you go through Matthew's Gospel, you see there's a lot of quotes from the Old Testament proven to the reader that Jesus fulfilled those Old Testament prophecies. Now, anybody can read Matthew and, and, and learn the gospel and, and see Jesus' ministry and his death and burial and resurrection, but that was the perspective that was given when Matthew was inspired by the Spirit of God to write that gospel. Mark's gospel has a little bit different perspective, and it shows that Jesus was the perfect servant. It is Luke's gospel, Luke being a Gentile. Luke was not one of the disciples. I know I'm a little bit in my New Testament survey mode right now with my students, but so many of them think that Luke was one of the apostles. He wasn't. He was a Gentile. He's the only Gentile writer of the New Testament, and he wrote about 25% of the New Testament with the gospel of Luke and also the book of Acts, right? So Dr. Luke, he writes his book to show, and, and his emphasis was to the Greek reader who is all into the perfect man, you know, and that was the Greek philosophy. So he's showing that Jesus was the perfect man, and then John's gospel was showing that Jesus is the Son of God, that Jesus is deity. And so they got a little bit different perspective, and some of those stories are in all four of those gospels, but when they are, it's like the Lord is saying, I want you to understand this. I want you to get this down. I want you to note these stories because they're recorded in the Gospels. They're repeated for us to know and, get, and really to understand. And one of the things that we're going to see even on Sunday, that as Peter, you recall that if you were with us a couple Sundays ago, 
when we left off in chapter 10 of the book of Acts, that he went to Cornelius' house and he spoke to Cornelius, that Roman centurion, and his family and all his friends that were there, and salvation came to them, the Holy Spirit came upon them, and they were amazed that salvation came to the Gentiles. Well, this Sunday, when we open up chapter 11, what we're going to see is that Peter goes back up to Jerusalem and the believers there, those Jewish believers, are going to say, Peter, you went to a Gentile's house and ate with them and and they received the gospel. They're just going to be absolutely amazed because they don't quite understand that this thing called the church that has begun in the book of Acts there in the first century, that it would include both not only Jews but Gentiles, that it includes all those who come in faith to Jesus Christ. So we're going to see that Peter's going to recount what happened, again, just repeating what we saw in chapter 10. And it's like the Lord is saying, I want you to understand this, this principles, and we'll talk about that on Sunday. Well, First and Second Chronicles, we're going to go through these stories once again concerning David, concerning the, the kings of Judah. One of the things that will be a little bit easier for us is that First and Second Chronicles only talks about the kings of Judah. You remember that in our study of First and Second Kings that we were also studying the kings of Israel. After the nation had split, uh, after Solomon's death was Rehoboam, and during the reign of Rehoboam, the ten northern tribes rebelled, and so you had the house of Israel up north, the ten northern tribes. They would go off into captivity in 722 B.C., and then you had the two tribes, Judah and Benjamin, down south that made up the house of Judah. And we ended, you recall, last month with Judah going off into captivity for that 70 years of captivity starting in in 605 BC. But what we're going to see here in First and Second Chronicles, that it only talks about the kings of Judah. So that makes it a little bit easier. When we were in First and Second Kings, we really had to put on our thinking caps, didn't we? Because we were talking about the kings of Israel one moment, and then the next paragraph, we're talking about one of the kings of Judah. So it gives us a spiritual perspective on the kings of Judah. You see, it was in First and Second Kings, and also Second Samuel, that it gave us a more of a political perspective. What we're going to see, and what I really like about First and Second Chronicles, is additional information is going to be given to us about these kings, again, giving us a more spiritual perspective and, and dealing only with the southern kingdom of Judah. So here we see that First and Second Chronicles, there's going to be a lot of genealogies. The first nine chapters of First Chronicles uh, deals with genealogy. Now, I'm going to spare you from reading all of these names, okay? So you can read these names by yourself, or we can t- I can call for volunteers if you want to come up and try to go through these names. But this would you know, be good reading for you to go through these names if you want to. But these names are here. It's an important reason why they are in our Bibles. And it's not just to fill up space. Number one, In ancient Israel, inheritance, and we've talked about this before, was really, really important when it came to passing land. Um, So inheritance, you had genealogy, and genealogy uh, was something that would be researched. And and when it came to a kinsman redeemer, if that came along, that situation, we'll talk more about that later as we go through 1 Chronicles. But it was real important when it came to the inheritance. 
Also, we're going to see that it's going to talk a lot about in these genealogies about the Levites and descendants of Aaron who were the priests. You remember that as you study uh, there in the book of Exodus, as you study the book of Leviticus, as you study the book of Numbers, that we know that when God brought the children of Israel into the wilderness, that he said to the Levites that you guys are going to be the priestly office. And there's different families of the Levites Only the direct descendants of Aaron, who was Moses' brother, were going to be the priests. And one of them was going to be the high priest. So that was the priesthood. And then the other families of the Levites would assist the priests in their ministry there in the tabernacle or at the temple. So if you had that priestly ministry or that ministry as a Levite, you had to prove through genealogy that that's, you know, your descendant. That's where you came from before you could serve in the temple or in the tabernacle. Also, we know that the Levites, that tribe was not given an inheritance. The Lord said when they went into the promised land in the days of Joshua as they conquered the land, there is the inheritance given to the different tribes. The tribe of Levi, the Lord said, you will not receive an inheritance, but instead there are certain cities that were listed that the Levites would live in and the people would give to the Levites to support them in the work that they did, the spiritual work uh, for the Lord. And uh, the Lord said that I will be your inheritance. So it's real important that if you were Levite that you had that genealogy to prove so you could you know work in the temple or in the tabernacle but also the genealogy is given what we're going to see is that those who came along who perhaps were skeptics could check the, the genealogy to see if Jesus did come from the line of David. Because you recall from 2 Samuel chapter 7 that David was given that promise that David, that upon your throne is going to come the Messiah. And he, your throne is going to be established forever. And David was just overwhelmed by that and was worshiping the Lord. So when you go to the Gospels, when you see that the people cried out to Jesus, son of David, that was a messianic term. They were saying, we believe that you're the Messiah. You're the son of David. You are the Messiah that comes from the line of David. In any of those, um, after the ministry of Jesus, as word was getting around that Jesus came and fulfilled the prophecies of the Old Testament, one of those prophecies was that he came from the line of David. So they would be able to check the genealogies to see if he would meet that one qualification for Messiah, which he does. So that's why these genealogies are here. And it is also believe that while I'm talking about an introduction to this book of First Chronicles, that First Chronicle was written by Ezra the priest and the scribe. And he would write this uh, book of First and Second Chronicles. Again, initially it was one book, but now in our Bibles it's two books, that he would write this account of, of these stories of First and Second Chronicles in about 450 B.C., Now, to put things in perspective, again, uh, that's after the the captivity of Judah. They first went off into captivity about 605 B.C. The captivity would end in about 536 B.C., and it would be Zerubbabel that would come back and rebuild the temple, and then later on it would be Ezra that would come back, and then Nehemiah who built the wall around Jerusalem. So here is Ezra, about 450 B.C., writing this book. And, of course, the Holy Spirit is the ultimate author of uh, all of the books of the Bible. So let's begin to read some of this as we go into First Chronicles chapter 1, verse 1. Adam, Seth, Enosh, Canaan, and Mahalalel, Jared, Enoch, Methuselah, Lamech, and in verse 4, Noah, 
Shem, Ham, and Japheth. You, you said that, uh, Pastor Jeff, you weren't going to read all the names. I just thought I'd try it out for the first four verses here. But, you know, Adam is a good place to start uh, for genealogy, isn't it? Uh, because he was the first man. And here's something that I want you to always to remember and never forget, that Adam, Adam was a real man. And there was a real Garden of Eden. And I think that more and more that Christians, and, and maybe particular young Christians, are, are being told that Adam was a myth and the Garden of Eden was just an allegory and it didn't really happen. Well, Jesus, he said it happened. And you recall that in our first week, when we were talking about our uh, family series, that God, when he created the heavens and the earth, and, and we see the creation story in chapter 1, and then in chapter 2, after he created it for six days, he looked at it and he said, it is good, it is all good, and he had created Adam. But the first time that God said it is not good is when he saw Adam was alone. So then out of Adam's rib, he made Eve and brought Eve to Adam. And we read there in chapter 2 of the book of Genesis that uh, definition of marriage, the first family that was formed, and that is a man shall leave his father and mother and cleave to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. That's the definition of marriage, the first family being formed at that time. It would be in Matthew chapter 19 that the religious leaders came and asked Jesus about divorce and a certificate of divorce for Moses uh, is it permittable and and Jesus would go back to Genesis chapter 2 and he said have you guys not read that a man shall leave his father and mother and cleave to his wife and the two shall become one flesh don't you know that it's been that way from the beginning and so Jesus put his stamp of approval on Adam and Eve in the garden of Eden this was all before they you know the sin came in chapter 3 We also know that Paul the Apostle in Ephesians chapter 5, he also quotes from Genesis chapter 2, giving us the definition of marriage, and we looked at that last week. So here is the Bible, that all throughout the Bible, that we see that Adam was a real person. He's included in the genealogies, and I want you to understand this. I'm just going to reiterate this because I think it's really, really important because more and more I talk to those who say, well, you know, Adam, if he, even if he was a real person, there was other civilizations. There was a lot of evolution before Adam, and that's not what the Bible says. Listen, this is important. In Romans chapter 5, it is Paul that says, when Adam sinned, then sin and death came into the world. In other words, going back to Genesis in the creation account, what the Lord told Adam was, don't eat of that tree of the knowledge of good and evil. If you eat of that tree, you shall surely die. See, there was no death before that. And then when Adam ate of that tree, Genesis chapter 3, that's when we know that a curse came into the world. And as Paul writes in Romans chapter 5, that because of Adam's sin, and we are all descendants of Adam, then sin and death has come into the world. And we know that to be true. Every single one of us is one day going to face death. Our bodies are not going to live forever. All of us are going to taste physical death unless we're raptured, which I pray would happen. Um, But if the Lord tarries, then eventually our days are going to be numbered here in, in this life. And all of us are born with this sin nature. Now, sometimes people don't like to hear that, but it's true. Because as we grow up, we don't have to be, you know, learn how to lie. We don't have to learn to be selfish. We don't have to learn to, to lust. That's the sin nature that is in us. We have to learn 
to tell the truth. We have to learn, you know, self-control and all these things, and it has to be a work of God. But here's the point. In, in Romans chapter 5, Paul makes it very clear, the great apostle Paul, that he says when Adam sinned, that's when sin and death came into the world. And if you believe in evolution, what you're saying is that God brought death into the world through evolutionary processes. And it wasn't a result of the sin of man. And I know that I've upset even a few pastors over this, but if you believe that sin and death came in before Adam, that God brought in death because of evolutionary processes, you're taken away from the very foundation of the gospel. The gospel is this. All of us have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. But Jesus Christ, as Paul goes on to write in that chapter, the last Adam, because of his righteous act, has brought life to you and to me. And you see, Jesus, who knew no sin, went to the cross. And he's the one who bore our sins upon himself. Because the problem is, because of our sin, we've been separated from God. And we can't save ourselves. We can't earn our way to heaven. The law, we can't keep the law, as Paul writes in the book of Romans. In those first four chapters, he makes that case very clear that the law only declares that we're guilty, that we are sinners. It's true. Because Adam sinned, sin and death has come to all men. But the last Adam, Jesus Christ, the Son of God, died for you and for me and rose again from the grave. He conquered sin and death. And that's what we celebrated most specifically last week, wasn't it? So I want you to understand that because there is a lot of pressure that is put on Christians that they have to believe in evolution. Listen, we got a lot of good books, and we don't have time to go into it a lot, but we got a lot of good books in our bookstore, Answers in Genesis, that will give you good scientific reasons why the uh, creation story is true, a lot of good scientific reasons why you no know, flood makes sense and helping us understand the fossil records and all of this. You do not have to assassinate your brain, okay, to become a Christian and believe in a creation story, six days of creation. Matter of fact, I went to school, graduated in a science field at CSU, and I remember going through all this evolution and thinking, how could this all happen? How can it just evolve the complexity and diversity of, of, of life here in this, in this world? Somebody had to create it. And we have that account given to us in the book of Genesis. So don't think that you have to at any time when it comes to anything like that assassinate your brain as a Christian. That the Bible is very much able to explain itself and then science can come along and also, you know, defend what the Bible has to say. And those scientists are in there and growing more increasingly and saying, hey, we're looking at different things and it makes sense and all of this. So I wish we had more time to go into it. But research it yourself and make sure that you understand that the foundation of the gospel is this. When Adam sinned, that's when sin and death came into the world. Not before that. If you eat of that tree, Adam, you shall surely die. Adam didn't know what death was. He'd never seen it before. He never saw it before until him and Eve sinned. And then we have a fallen creation and sin and death has come into the world. Are we clear on this? I'm not just an old fogey, you know, that, that um, you know, just going to, you know, be hard-headed and, and stand on the Genesis and you're not sophisticated, you don't know anything. Listen, I, I wrestled with this when I was young, when I was in school, when I was in the school of forestry. 
And I remember researching it and thinking, you know what? There's a wonderful creator, and, and there's some good reasons, you know, that back up good science, the creation story. And I want you to know that it's there. So if you're interested, look in our bookstore, and it is there. See, here we are. We've been going on, and we've only gone through a few verses here, so in these, in these uh, genealogies. But here you have the names in the first four verses of Adam to the sons of Noah. And um, we know that Noah had three sons. They were the ones that repopulated the earth after the flood, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. And in verse 5, the sons of Japheth were Gomer, Magog, and Tubal, and Meshach, and, and the list goes on. Now, isn't it interesting? Here's another thing as well. When you read these names, you know, you start looking at this J-Path. Uh, these uh, were eventually uh, ones that would um, settle up in present-day Eastern Europe, up into parts of Asia. And uh, notice those names. You look at it in Gomar and Magog um, and Tubal and Meshach. What does that remind you of? Doesn't it remind you of what we studied on our prophecy update? Remember our prophecy update when we were talking about Ezekiel chapter 38? That, that battle that is yet future, that Ezekiel, he talks about how the Jews are going to come back into the land, chapters 36 and 37, and the land's going to blossom. We've seen a fulfillment of chapters 36 and 37, and then chapter 38, how this massive invasion of these nations that are going to come against Israel, and some of those nations that are mentioned are mentioned here that we just read in, in verse 5. Magog, speaking of Russia, that's those group of people that, that settled up there in Tubal, which speaks about uh, in that area of Turkey. And, and it's interesting to kind of go back and, and research it and see it. And um, it is interesting to see the alliances coming together exactly like the Scripture says. So here's one of the things. If you can believe what the Bible says about the beginning in Adam in the Garden of Eden, you can believe what the Bible says about the end. And you see, I don't think we can fully understand the end unless you begin to understand the beginning and believe the beginning. And you remember in the book of Revelation that it was the angel that told John that write these things down that must take place. Not that they might take place. It's a possibility it could happen. Not that, you know what, we think this is going to happen. Write these things down that must take place. And it's so amazing to look at all the prophecies concerning Jesus' first coming that they were all fulfilled, every dot and tittle of them. And we know that every prophecy concerning Jesus' second coming is literally going to be fulfilled. So we're watching it very, very closely, aren't we? The events that are taking place, and we're seeing these alliances. Matter of fact, I read just a couple weeks ago that it is Gomer that made this military pact with Cush. In other words, Turkey made this military alliance with Sudan, all a part of this Ezekiel chapter 38. And then in verses 8 through 16, again, we're going to just survey it, highlight it here. I'm not going to read all the names. The sons of, of um, Ham here, they inhabited Africa and the Middle East. You have uh, some names that, again, we're familiar with, with Cush and Put and Sheba. Sheba is talking about Saudi Arabia in that area. And so that's verses 8 through 16. And then in verse 17, what we have is the sons of Shem. And again, verses 17 and 18, um, they were ones that remained in the Middle East. Verse 17 is us, 
uh, is listed there, and that's where uh, we're told that Job would come from. And then in verse 19, to Eber were born two sons. The name of one was Peleg, and for his day the earth was divided, and his brother's name was Joktan. Interesting. What does it mean that um, in his day the earth was divided? We don't know exactly what that means, but there's two possibilities. One is it could refer to the dispersion that took place at the Tower of Babel. Remember Genesis chapter 11? When all the, the people were there and they were going to make this tower and make it up to, to, um, to heaven and we're going to be you know, like God and, and they were in rebellion. And so the Lord saw that and so he scattered the people and mixed their language. So maybe that's what it's being spoken of, or it could be uh, speaking of the geological movement of the continents. You say, what do you mean the geological movement of the continents? Again, you can do some more research on it, but it is believed that we know that before Noah's flood that, that there was a firmament around the earth. And it was a water canopy is what it was, and that it was tropical climate. It was a beautiful climate. The fossil records prove that, don't they? They found tropical plants in the Antarctic and the Arctic uh, Circle, uh, mammoths that were frozen all of a sudden up in that area, uh, tropical plants even in the Sierra Desert. And what is believed, one of the theories, is that all the continents were together, and then when it began to rain, that firmament began to release the water, and it rained for 40 days. But also, what the book of Genesis says, that waters came up from under the earth. And so there was this great pressure. Matter of fact, there is a scientist, Dr. Brown, that works for the government and, and has worked for the Pentagon, that he has come up with a theory that's very, very fascinating as you read it. And he explains even some of the meteorites, that as it came up, the water, this great pressure from the earth, and all of a sudden the earth would crack. And it's interesting, you can see those ridges. As you look at a map, you can see, you can kind of put the continents together, couldn't you? And there's a ridge, and it believed that it came up and spewed rock and water, all this pressure that came up. And it's interesting that some of the meteors that they have found that has come back has salt water in it. So it explains even some of the meteorites. And, and what happened is the continents would then split. They were divided, and then when they stopped, the edges of the continent created mountain ranges. So it's very fascinating as you look at stuff and then how the water receded and it receded very quickly and it made the Grand Canyon and all of this and then some of the fossils were fossilized very, very quickly. Something suddenly happened to where they have fossils of, of fish that were in active swimming or the mammoths that have you know, something in their, their mouth still eating it. So it's very fascinating to look at that. So perhaps, again, we don't have time to go into it in detail, that is talking about that, that when the continents, uh, geological movement of the continents took place. It is also interesting that, just a little side note, that isn't it interesting in the book of Revelation that it talks about when the sixth seal comes along that every mountain is going to be removed and island's going to be removed. Some have said, well, it's a result of nuclear exchange. I don't think it's a result of nuclear exchange. It's not going to, you know, have mountain ranges that are going to disappear and islands disappear. I think, and some have believed, that perhaps the earth is going to rotate once again on its axis, some believe. 
So that's one of the possibilities that could happen. You have great geological upheaval that's going to happen and also cosmic upheaval and, and, and that's going to take place as well. And that's a study for another time. But it's something that's very interesting as you look at the Word of God, these things coming about. Let's move on. At least we can get chapter 1 done tonight, huh? Verses 20 through 27. Genealogy continues from Shem to Abraham. Abraham, who was the father of the Jewish people, he was also the father of the Arabs, as we're going to see. Abraham, you recall in Genesis chapter 12, he was told, take your family, your wife, Abraham, go to the place that I'm going to show you. And, and God made a promise to Abraham that I'm going to make you a great nation. And then Abraham was 75 years old at that time. Sarah, his wife, was 65 years old. They had no children. And the Lord said, you're going to have a son. Your descendants are going to number the stars in the sky. And so that promise was given to Abraham. So he is the father of the Jewish people. We know that that covenant would go from Abraham to Isaac to Jacob, and that's what we're going to see as we continue on. Also, we know um, that uh, we as, um, as Christians that realize that you're descendants of Abraham as well. That is that he is uh, the father of faith. He believed God, and it was accounted to him for righteousness. So Paul comes along in the book of Galatians, and he makes the case that we also are the seed of Abraham because we're the seed of faith. You see, remember that the religious leaders in, in Jesus' day, remember they boasted about how they were descendants of Abraham, and they thought that because of that and they were circumcised, that brought automatic salvation to them. And you recall that it was John the Baptist that even rebuked them. John the Baptist said that God could raise up, you know, from these rocks descendants for Abraham. In other words, quit thinking that God owes you guys something. But your hearts aren't right. So we've looked at that, but Paul goes on to say that we, as uh, come to faith in Jesus Christ, that we really, that we're the seed of Abraham, that is, he's the father of faith as well. So this, the spiritual dimension of it, as Paul brings out. And then in verse 28, we see that the sons of Abraham were Isaac and Ishmael. Now, who was Ishmael? You know that it was Abraham that, um, you know, as the promise was given to him and years went by, and all of a sudden, Sarah's going, nothing's happening, Abraham. Maybe you need to have a child with my maidservant, Hagar. And Abraham did, and that's where Ishmael was born. And that's in Genesis chapter 16. And he's the father of the Arabs. But the covenant wouldn't go through Ishmael. It would go through Isaac as well. So verses 29 through 31, you have uh, the family of Ishmael. And again, God told Hagar, I'm going to multiply your descendants exceedingly. And then in verses 32 and 33, we have the family Keturah. Um, after the death of Sarah, Abraham lived for about another 40 years, and he had six more sons from his concubine, Keturah. And one of those sons was Midian that's listed there, just to highlight him. He was the father of the Midianites, and they were a constant problem to the Israelites. Also, kind of a little uh, note of interest that Abraham lived to be 175 years old. When Abraham was born, Shem, Noah's son, was still alive. And perhaps the direct account of the flood was given, you know, at that time. Sure it was. Whether it was given to, to Abraham when, you know, he was small, I don't know, because he came from the land that worshipped the moon god and things like that. But it's interesting that, that he was around when Noah's son was still around as well. In verse 34 through uh, 37, we have the family of Isaac. 
And uh, Isaac was the one who the covenant, as I mentioned, continued through. Uh, Isaac had twins, Esau. Esau means hairy. So Esau was the one that was rough and tough and went hunting and all this. So um, it was, um, you know, uh, Rebecca that had twins. And uh, the first one that came out, he had hair all over him. So they said, we'll call him Harry. So they called him Esau. And then the second one, as we see here, um, that Isaac had in verse 34 was Israel. Of course, we know that to be, to be um, Jacob. Jacob, his name means heel snatcher. And the reason that they called him Jacob is because when Esau came out, it was Jacob that had a hold of his heel. It was like, as we know that Genesis tells us, that inside Rebekah's womb, uh, there was warring going on. So she inquired of the Lord, remember that? And it was the Lord that said, you have two nations inside of you. So Esau got out, and Jacob was holding on to his ankle, kind of like they continued in that mode until they were delivered. So they called him heel snatcher, Jacob. It also takes on the meaning of conniver, one who schemes, one who likes to deceive. And we know that Jacob was that way, wasn't he? That he would end up getting the birthright from Esau. Esau, who was a carnal individual, he gave up his birthright for a pot of stew that Jacob offered to him. And also, Jacob would get the blessing. So we see that all in the book of Genesis. But Jacob, he's an interesting individual. And he was one, again, that was conniving, one that was always striving. He was very resourceful. For 20 years after he leaves his father's house, he goes to Pandanaran. And there is the whole story how he marries Leah and he marries uh, Rachel and, and, um, and he has, you know, his sons and all of this. He's working for his uncle Laban. They're bargaining, uh, going back and forth. And, and Jacob was just one guy that was always looking for the next deal and, and resourceful and, and always getting out of a jam somehow until one day he leaves Pandanaran to come back to Canaan. And he has his two wives, his two concubines, his 12 you know, sons, his, his daughters, all his flocks, his sheep, and he's coming back and he gets word that Esau's coming at him with 400 men. Again, we don't have time to go into it tonight, but most of you know the story how Esau was very upset at his brother because Jacob was very conniving and deceiving in, re, in getting his father to give him, Jacob, the blessing. And so Esau missed out on it. He said, I'm going to kill you, Jacob. And Jacob took off for those 20 years. He's coming back. Word gets to him, your brother's coming at you with 400 men, and he can't go back to see Uncle Laban because he made a covenant he wouldn't do that. So he finds himself at a brook called Jabbok. He can't go forward. He can't go backwards. He sends his family away, and he's all alone. And you read Genesis chapter 32. As he's all alone, all of a sudden somebody sneaks up on him and begins to wrestle with him. And he wrestles with them. And this one wrestling with Jacob says, What's your name? said, Jacob. He said, your name's now going to be called Israel, which means governed by God. And you see, it was the Lord that was wrestling with Jacob. And it says that Jacob, with tears, the scriptures tell us, said, I won't let you go till you bless me. And it was the Lord that touched Jacob's hip and it came out of socket and 
It was Jacob, then called Israel, as we see here in this genealogy. They never walked the same. He had to use a cane and lean on that cane. But there's a very important lesson. I know some of you know this, but I think it's worth reminding all of us of this. That a lot of times in life, we're Jacob. A lot of times, if we can come up with a plan, if we can come up with our own ideas, if we can get out of this situation, if we can manipulate, if we can scheme, if we can make it happen, we're going to do that. That's what Jacob was. But sometimes the Lord allows us to be in situations where we find ourselves at the brook. That we finally realize that, Lord, I can't go forward and I can't go backwards. And we begin to wrestle with things. And maybe tonight some of you are wrestling with the Lord over some things. And you're wondering where to go and what to do, and I don't have the answers. And the Lord would say to you that I want you to be Israel, which means governed by God. For you to trust in Him and to rest in His love and in His promises and know that God's going to see you through. And you see... His walk was never the same. He had to use that cane, and the Lord desires for you to lean on Him, for Him to guide you and direct you. And it's oftentimes when we come to that place where finally where we say, Lord, okay, I'm going to stop scheming and conniving and coming up with my own plans. It usually it happens at that place of brokenness and that place where we realize that I'm not smart enough And I'm not together enough and I'm not strong enough to get through this situation. And that's not always a bad place to be because what that does is causes us to lean on the Lord. Listen, he wants all of us to be called Israel, which means governed by God in our lives. We can be so good about trying to come up with our own plans and our own schemes and our own conniving. When the Lord says, I want full submission I want you to rely on me because I want to bless you so much. And I want to use you and I want to guide you and I want to direct you. Are you fighting with the Lord, wrestling with the Lord tonight? Will you just allow him to touch your heart and allow him to direct your life in every area of your life? Because he's going to be able to do a whole lot more and you're going to have a whole lot more satisfaction and real purpose and strength and wisdom than you ever could in your own strength. I don't care how smart you are, how strong you are, how healthy you are, how together you might be. He says, I want you to be Israel. Let me lead your life. Are you surrendered to him? Is there some area that you're holding back from him? Maybe you're here tonight, you've never fully surrendered to him. You see, the Lord says that I died for you. That's why we're going to come to the communion table now. Jesus died for your sins. And as we come to the communion table, to the believers here, as we come, we hold the cup and the bread, and it symbolizes Jesus' body broken for us. And the cup is the cup of, you know, the new covenant in my blood, Jesus said, for the forgiveness of sin. That's what we celebrated last week during Passion Week and Good Friday and Easter. And Jesus rose from the grave. And you see, he comes And he came, he comes tonight to say, surrender to me your life for salvation and forgiveness and to come into right relationship with the Father. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. 
No one else died for you. No one else rose from the grave. It is Jesus Christ who conquered sin and death as he went to the cross for you. Have you surrendered your life to him? Because there's no other salvation. The book of Hebrews says there's no other sacrifice for salvation. He's the author of eternal life. And then maybe you're here tonight, and as you come to the communion table, maybe there's some area Christian in your life that you're wrestling with the Lord. Go ahead, wrestle with them. But there's going to be a time where he desires for you to yield to him, where you say, okay, I'm ready to be called Israel. So, Father, we thank you for tonight. We thank you for this time together and just this lesson that we've had that is very important. And, Lord, I just want to pray if there's anybody here tonight that maybe they've never surrendered their heart to Jesus Christ. Maybe you're here tonight, you've never come to salvation. Jesus died for you because of his love for you. And the Bible is true. Sin and death came into the world because of Adam. And our sin has separated us from him, from God. But Jesus Christ came. The reason that he came and died on the cross is to take care of the sin problem. That all of your sins were placed upon him, and then he would, on that cross, bear your sins, die in place of you and for you. He tasted death for you. And then he would die, but before he died, he said, it is finished. I've paid the price. I've made atonement for sin. And now salvation comes by faith. Salvation comes by turning to Jesus and surrendering your life to him. Again, that the Lord created you and he loves you. He died for you. And it comes by you just acknowledging, coming in faith, trusting that he died for you and that he is the source of eternal life believing he's the son of God that died for your sins and he rose again. And perhaps he's knocking on the door of your heart. You know he's alive. Will you open up your heart to him tonight? And you can do that by praying a prayer. Father, I believe that Jesus came and died for me, that he is my salvation, none other. And I now turn to you, Jesus, be my personal Lord and Savior. I believe that you died on Calvary's cross for my sins. I confess I'm a sinner. Forgive me of my sins, and I believe you rose from the grave. And thank you for hearing my prayer and for your forgiveness and provision. And help me to live for you all the days of my life. If you prayed that prayer, will you just put your hand up and put it back down? Anybody at all here tonight? I just want to pray with you. God bless you. I see you. I just feel like there are those. I see you. God bless you. I need to make that commitment.